Hello and welcome to episode 123 of the Batflip Crazy podcast, where you always find enthusiastic, data-driven fantasy baseball analysis and strategy. I am your host, uh, Toby. Uh, today I am doing a relatively short, at least for my episodes, uh, mailbag, where I'm taking about 10 questions from folks on Twitter about a variety of different both strategy and player-related uh, topics. Uh, they include, you know, what are my KDS preferences heading into this year? That's Kentucky Derby style uh, preferences. So, like, where do I want to draft uh, first uh, in the first round? Uh, what do I want my draft position to be? Um, what are the categories I feel most comfortable uh, sacrificing coming out of drafts? Uh, pitchers outside of the top 10 that I really like. Uh, Shohei Otani's value in. Uh, daily moves leagues. There's a variety of different questions. So tried to get, well, I did get to every single one of them. So um, hopefully you find them helpful. I'm going to try to do these types of shorter podcasts uh, throughout the season, uh, primarily like mailbags, just to make sure that I'm responding to people's questions and what people are saying their needs are for information, but then also just sharing some of my some of the things that I've noticed about different player performances and stuff like that. So definitely let me know um, if you like this format. As always, you can reach me on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy. Uh, leave a five-star rating and review or whatever star rating and review you like uh, on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I really, uh, really appreciate that. It's always great to get new reviews. We're at 194 reviews right now. I'm going for that 200 mark. I'm also approaching 100,000 listens uh, on the podcast overall. This podcast should put us over the top there, which is super uh, exciting and quite the milestone. So if you haven't already and you do like the podcast, please do leave that uh, rating and review. All right, let's do the mailbag. Let's get this party started. The first question we have for tonight's mailbag comes from at the underscore guilds who asks, what's the one offensive category you're most willing to sacrifice this year in a 15-team draft with Fab, i.e. the main event? So for folks who follow the podcast and who follow me on Twitter and who have seen some of the teams that I share, I think it's pretty clear that the one category that I'm willing, not necessarily, well, sacrifice is a good word. The one category that I'm willing, that I want to leave a draft with, if any, uh, where I'm down a little bit is home runs. I think home runs are the most readily available category on the waiver wire. Uh, you can't really get speed uh, or batting average off the waiver wire on a consistent basis. And if you do, it's likely to cost you dearly in other categories. At least that's most likely, right? There are certain instances where you can get your Danny Santana and he does well for you the entire year but you can't necessarily rely on that coming out of a draft. So of all the hitting categories in particular, uh, I feel best about leaving a draft having sacrificed a little bit of home runs because I do think through matchups and churning and, and guys getting access to plate appearances, power is a skill that a lot of people in baseball have right now. And so it's definitely the one that I'm willing to sacrifice most uh, in drafts. Uh, the one thing that you do need to think about, though, is if you are going to be attacking home runs through FAB, you know you have to assume that those home runs are probably going to come with their own penalty, right? And it may be a lack of runs. It may be a lack of batting average. It's probably a lack of stolen bases. And so you really need to be pretty strong uh, in those categories, if not you know stronger than 
uh, you, you know, I, I talk a lot about kind of the 80th percentile, but maybe you want to be a little bit stronger in those categories, knowing uh, that you are going to be chasing home runs on fab. From a pitching perspective, you know, you don't really, I don't really want to punt anything. You know, you don't want to punt saves. I don't mind waiting to go after closers who I think have a, have a solid role as closers, uh, but maybe don't cost as much because they have less history in the role or maybe the skills last year were not good. I want highly skilled relievers. I want consistent relievers as much as possible, but recognizing that there's kind of variance in those small sample sizes that they pitch, I'm okay waiting a little bit and um, and hoping that I get, uh, you know, not necessarily lucky, but banking uh, on the fact that those guys can keep their jobs because they've got a pretty cr- uh, consistent access to saves. Um, and hopefully, you know, variance is on my side in terms of them not blowing three saves in a row, but maybe, you know, blowing three saves over their first, you know, 15 games or 20 games or whatever it is, uh, if not zero, which is the ideal situation. So I'm not punting saves from a pitching perspective, but I am focusing a lot more on ratios. You know, that is the hardest thing to stream. It's the hardest thing to get on the waiver wire, um, at least with any bit of certainty, right? You can always luck out and, you know, get on a good run of streaming that helps your ratios out, but it's really hard to rely on that. So that's why I do target the two aces early on is just to make sure that I'm, I'm really as much as possible getting solid ratios. And I think it's also good to try to stay away from guys who issue a lot of walks and who have higher whips um, because that is a tough skill to get later on in in the pitching uh, pitching pool. So uh, definitely home runs. If I'm leaving a draft, that's the one that I want to be weakest in. In pitching, I want to be strongest in ratios because I can, you know, stream the other categories. Uh, But again, you know, it's always dangerous. So really just trying to leave a draft solid in nine categories and then maybe a little bit behind in home runs, not a ton, you know, maybe uh, 30, maybe 40 home runs, you know, 25 home runs. I don't necessarily have to be at the 80th percentile if I can be higher in other categories. Next question is from uh, Comacdu, at Comacdu. He asks, what do you value more in a TGFBI style competition? Overall standing or winning your league? Example, the overall champ could come from a weak league, but some people finish second or third in the league, but in the top 30 overall. Also, he wants to know if Bubba and I have a side bet on this. Well, we'll, we'll have to talk about that on the next Bubba and the Bat Flip about the side bet. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's an either or situation as you enter a draft. I think I always want to win the league, right? That's my goal heading into any league that I join. I want to win the league. Um, and I can't win the overall competition if I don't win, win my league, right? Because if I'm second in my, well, theoretically you could because you have more balance than another team, but it's very hard to uh, not win your league and, and win an overall competition. And so really what the overall competition aspect does is, you know, it um, there's a lot of different ways to win a, a standalone league, right? You could punt a category, you could shoot to get, you know, uh, an eight out of 15 in two categories and then dominate in the other categories. I mean, there's a lot of ways to handle it, but there's really only one tried and true strategy for winning uh, an overall competition like the main event or TGFBI. And that's really taking a balanced approach in your draft. So I always build my teams in a balanced way. Um, That gives me a shot at the overall I also happen to think that building that type of a balanced team is the best way to build a team 
that's going to win in a standalone league too, um, because I think it gives you a lot more options, right? If you punt a category, and by punting, I mean like you're getting a one in that category, you really need to be strong in all of the other categories. And there's some luck involved in that, right? Like even if you go really hard on hitting, you know, you still need to do really well in pitching, you know? And so it really gives you a very limited path to a narrow path to victory, which means that, which isn't to say that it's not going to happen. Um, I also like the balanced approach because I think it's just more fun to try to build a balanced team, but that's just me. Um, but you know, the reason why I talk a lot about the 80th percentile is I don't necessarily have to have 80th percentile in every single category, but I do need to be very good in every category, you know, and when everything's combined, I need to be at around 80th percentile. So, you know, and that would give me 120 points out of 150 in a, you know, in a 15 team league. So it could be that I'm 90 in batting average and 70 in stolen bases or a 70 in home runs and a 90 in, in runs, you know, um, there can be a lot of different ways to, to get to that kind of 80th percentile on average. And you probably have to do even better than that. I mean, I think the guy who won the main event this year was closer to the 90th percentile, um, in everything. And, and I think he probably had the best league in main event history, potentially, um, in terms of the percentage of overall points, uh, but not trying to get sidetracked here. You know, that's why I kind of take that balanced approach. And so that's why you'll see maybe, my drafts in, in overall competitions look a little a little strange or maybe look a little different. The roster construction is a little different than it might be in a standalone league um, is because I'm really going for that balanced, uh, the balanced approach, which gives me an opportunity to have the, the possibility of winning the overall um, while also giving me a really good opportunity, I think, to compete in um, a standalone league. I think it also gives you flexibility in the sense that like if you start out around that, like you won't be at 80th across the board, but let's say you start off around 75th percentile overall or 70th percentile even, you know, in all of the categories. And let's say one of your main sources of stolen bases gets hurt, gets injured. Well, you know, let's say at the same time, like some of the guys who you didn't anticipate were going to hit for as much power as they had hit for a little bit of power. Now you're in a position where you don't necessarily have to be desperate in chasing saves and hurting yourself other ways. You might look at your roster and just say, you want to know something? I'm going to try to maximize this power, get you know 90th percentile in power, understand that I'm going to be like 60th percentile in stolen bases and realize that I might have to compensate other places to lift myself overall. And then as the season gets closer and you get closer to the end there, you know, with a month or even two months left over, you really have a good sense of which categories you need to work, which will help you gain more overall points in the overall standings, you know, and then you can really attack in that way. So I, I just think it gives you the flexibility to, to, to underperform in some areas, overperform in other areas, which, you know, is pretty typical, um, and then still really have a relatively balanced uh, team and a, and a pretty good team moving forward. And if you're lucky, you hit, you hit in everything and, and, and you really have a shot to win that overall. I uh, hope that was helpful. Uh, at Armchair Analyt one asks, who is a pitcher outside of the top five after Bueller that you have no doubts will finish inside the top 10 starting pitchers? It seems like everyone after five has some warts. Which warts are you worst, least worried about? Um, and, I, and I would agree. I mean, I think even Bueller has some warts, right? I think if you're drafting him where you're drafting him, you're expecting him to improve in some way, whether that's volume, whether that's strikeouts, but take that next step. But I agree with you. There's a lot more warts outside of that top five 
um, as you go through it. Factor of the matter is I don't have a starting pitcher that I feel I have no doubts is going to finish inside the top 10. If I did, I'd probably be picking that guy in every single draft, right? And I'd be I'd be changing my strategy to be able to target that guy because I felt so confident that they were going to finish in the top 10. I think that's one of the bases for my my strategy in targeting two starting pitchers early on is just the knowledge that they've done it before um, and they're more likely to be able to do that again. It's hard to get guys who haven't done that before um, and to do it again. And for that reason, I'll go through three guys that I really like to take a jump up from where their ADP is right now. And the first one is Lucas Giolito. I think he's uh, starting pitcher 12, something like that right now going off the board. So he's not jumping too far ahead. But, you know, Giolito last year showed all the skills that you need to be uh, an ace, to be not just an ace, but like an elite ace, to be a top five starting pitcher. Um, In his last 15 games started, he had a 33.7% K rate, a 7.6% walk rate, you know, so a 26.1% K minus walk rate, which is which is truly elite. He had a 15.4% swinging strike rate. He was absolutely dominant from just a skills perspective. Now, he did have some batted ball uh, trouble issue. Um, he's a fly ball pitcher, um, and we do have the ball flying out, and he's not in the best stadium. But I think there's a lot of things um, going uh, that, that look okay, um, for uh, Giolito, you know, he didn't have an insanely low BABIP or an insanely high strand rate uh, last year. His strand rate was pretty high, but it's not out of the ordinary for somebody who has the type of strikeout rate um, that he does. Um, so all of the skills were great. The whip was great. He's got two dominant pitches in the changeup and the slider, and the fastball is even dominant as well. Um, he was really able to dominate with that pitch as the season progressed. And so I think he's got everything uh, that he needs to be a top-end starter. And so he's the guy outside of the five, the top five, that from a value perspective, I probably like the most. Next up um, is Charlie Morton. He's another guy that I like. I think he's SP20 right now. One thing about Morton, I think he finished last year around SP10 for the whole season. So he's kind of already done that. But because of his age, you know, he's, he's knocked down a little bit. Last year, he had a career-high 12.9% swinging strike rate. Uh, his K minus walk rate was a 30.4% K rate, 7.2% walk rate, so a 23% K minus walk rate for the full season. Over his last 500 innings pitched, he has an ERA well under 3.5 and a K per nine over 10. Over 10. So everything you look at, he's really good. He's got a great defense behind him with the Rays. He's got a very good team behind him with the Rays. Um, he has got, you know. Um, uh, Maybe a tough division overall for ballparks, but a very good ballpark as his home park. And I think the AL East hitting is is a little overrated this year with some of the injuries that the Yankees are experiencing with the Orioles not being very good. You know, the Blue Jays should be solid, but still a lot of young hitters. And then the Red Sox have a very strong top five, but are pretty weak after that. So, I mean, it's still a pretty good hitting division, but I don't think it's as scary as the AL East has necessarily been in the past. Giolito definitely has that going for him uh, with the AL Central. Um, And then the last guy is Carlos Carrasco. I mean, Carlos Carrasco has done it before. He's been a top 10 pitcher before. Last year, um, he was going in the top 10 pitchers. And he had a non-baseball-related injury, so it's not an arm, it's not a shoulder, it's nothing like that. I mean, he did have the minor setback uh, in spring training. So, 
again, you know, that there's definitely some risk with a year off, but his skills were still pretty good when he pitched last year. And so he's another guy that I like who's going later on um, to kind of take that, that jump up. So those are three guys that I really like. Um, but again, I, I'm not sure of anybody. And so that's the reason why I haven't targeted one, one guy specifically outside of that and why I feel more comfortable grabbing some of the higher end uh, starting pitchers. Next question is from at Dan McEwen. And I actually thought this question was just a regular Twitter question. And so I actually responded on Twitter to it. So sorry about that, Dan. I'm also gonna, I'm also gonna answer this in uh, the mailbag. But uh, his question is, knowing how much you play in deeper leagues, would playing in a much shallower format, 10 teams, still lead you to be hammering your A strategy? Can you recommend passing on Trout slash Yelich for a guy like Cole if it might be a little easier to get, be- get better pitchers later? Uh, great question. So, you know, in shallower leagues, typically the scarce resources just get a little bit more valuable because replacement level is a lot higher. And so, you know, there isn't as much separation in things like home runs or runs or RBIs, but the more scarce categories like batting average and stolen bases is really what provides the separators. So, you know, guys who steal a lot, guys who hit for average, guys who do all of those things, you know, the five category contributors really do have a, have a huge edge in those shallower leagues. So when I plug uh, 10 teams into my valuations, the guy um, who gets a big, the biggest jump, and I think this is indicative, is Jose Ramirez, right? A guy who has elite power, well, not elite power, but very good power, elite speed, really good counting stats, and a solid batting average, right? So that just gives you an example of who's getting a little bit of a more of a boost from a 10 to a 12 or a 15 team league. You know, Jose Ramirez um, gets a little bit of that boost. Like in my valuations, the top guys are Trout uh, and Yelich and Acuna, but Garrett Cole is, you know, very close behind that, as is Justin Verlander and Jacob deGrom. Um, so, you know, the, the, and that's because the aces are also scarce, right? Guys that are, you know, and I'd argue in particular the top three aces are incredibly valuable, right? So those are the three guys that I feel most confident in um, is Garrett Cole, uh, Jacob deGrom, and for me, um, Justin Verlander. I think, you know, there isn't really injury concern um, with any of those three, at least any long-term injury concern recently. And they both, all three have proven over the last two years at least to be, you know, absolutely dominant at their craft. So I do think that there's also some, there's scarcity there for sure. And I think they're a lot more valuable than the guys who come after that. And Scherzer, and he looks like he's healthy, also falls into that category, I think. Um, so uh, what I do in this particular case, you know, I don't think it's necessarily as important that you take those aces as it is in a deeper league. But what I would do is just think about what your pick is, right? So let's say you have pick five, just because it's easier for me to figure out where you're picking. So in your first uh, five picks, you have pick five, pick 15, pick 25, pick 35, pick 45. So who do you want to have in that scenario? What makes you feel best about the foundation that you're going to start with? Who's going to be available? Is it going Cole, Bueller, and then Tatis Jr.? And I'm just making this up because these are the guys in my rankings who are, you know, would be in these spots. But let's just say it's Cole, Bueller, and Tatis Jr. as your top three. Do you feel more comfortable having Cole and Story? And maybe it's not Tatis Jr., but, you know, like an Anthony Rendon or somebody like that. Is that how you feel more comfortable? Or is it going with like a Cody Bellinger to start? Or following that up with a Walker Bueller 
and then maybe uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. You know, so just kind of play out what some what are some of the combinations that you might have in those top five picks, and what makes you feel like you have a really solid foundation. You're going to be able to stream better guys off the waiver wire. You're going to have more more of a chance of striking it rich on the waiver wire. Um, you know, because of the shallowness of the league. But at the same time, like the ERA that you're going to need to compete, the whip that you're going to need to compete, the, K, the Ks that you're going to need to compete, the saves that you're going to need to compete are all going to be a lot a lot better than they would be uh, in a deeper league. And so that's what I would say. I mean, I think especially in a standalone league where there isn't an overall, it's less important to do that, the double ace, you know, strategy. Like really just, um, you know, try, try try to figure out what, what you feel most comfortable with in terms of the dynamic for, you know, going pitcher hitter in those instances and think about where you might also be um, most disappointed. You know, like, would you be really disappointed if you missed out on this guy? Or would you be really disappointed if you missed out on that guy? And what gives you the best chance to do that? Because I really think that, you know, in a shallower league, I think that in a standalone league, the two aces is less important and it's more important to have kind of a solid foundation in each. And so just figure out like what you feel best about. Uh, okay, I hope that's helpful, uh, a helpful non-answer. <laughs> At Wits727 asks, where would you draft Otani in a 10-team Roto League with daily moves? So um, I don't play 10-teamers, so this is hard for me to conceptualize a little bit. Um, but I'd say probably pretty high up. I mean, maybe around pick 50 or so. Um, if not a little bit higher. And the reason I say this is that on a per game basis, I think Otani is a top 50 hitter, um, you know, or, a, or even a top 10, top 50 overall fantasy player. I mean, he gets you stolen bases. He gets you decent batting average. Um, he gets you um, decent runs and RBIs, especially in that improved lineup with Anthony Rendon there, you know, and he hits a decent amount of home runs. So on a day-to-day basis, you're going to get pretty good quality. And then the replacement value that you're going to get in the substitute for him when he's not in the daily lineup is also going to be very high. And then you can also maximize his pitching points. Now, I'm not convinced that he's going to pitch a ton this year because I think they've already pushed pushed back his start date, you know, for pitching to May. Is he going to pitch in the bullpen? Is he going to, you know, if he gets his starts, is it going to be once every six days, whatever it is. But in the daily league, you don't have to worry about that so much. You're going to have an opportunity to maximize that value. And so when you add in what Otani provides you from both a pitching and hitting perspective, um, with uh, the fact that the the replacement level is going to be a little bit better, um, I think that um, you know I think I feel pretty good about taking him pretty high up uh, because I do think that he can provide some unique value for you in those leagues. So you know again I don't play TN teamers, so I'm not sure whether that um, makes sense, and I haven't run the valuations. Um, you know, and it would be hard to really take into account that value for a daily perspective. But I do think he brings a ton of value in that type of format. All right. Next up is at, uh, this is from Colin Weatherwax, at C Weatherwax 13. And this is a little bit of a, of a it's a joke question, but I'm going to take it seriously because that's what I do. Um, it's how are you setting your KDS for the main event? So Colin asked this because... Um, who knows? We might be in the same main event league. Um, but, you know, I think for the KDS, for the for the main, I mean, this is it's a tough one, right? I think this year's KDS in particular is, is going to be really challenging because of the talent pool. So I generally lean in the kind of 4 to 10 range uh, for where I want to be drafting because I want one of those ideally top three starting pitchers. 
um, and that is Garrett Cole, Jacob deGrom, or Justin Verlander. Now, the question is, are they going to be available at 10? You know, like I know if I get if I get four, that one of them's probably going to be available. Um, if I if I'm picking at ten, you know, it's unlikely that Cole or Degrom are going to be there. Maybe it's Verlander. So the question is, how comfortable do I feel going with a Scherzer or a Bueller or taking a hitter that's fallen, right? Um, in that particular p- particular case. But I want to get a top end starting pitcher. So that's kind of the range that I'm leaning in, and I think a lot of it will also depend on what the KDS I get. I'm I'm in three mains this year. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, it depends on what, what I get in those different mains, because I probably want to have a little bit of a, uh, I want to have a little bit of a different, uh, players, um, and maybe even strategy in different mains, depending on what I'm able to accomplish and what those look like. But that's generally my range is kind of like looking at the, the middle of the draft being ideally where I want to be and where I feel like I can get the most value, um, I think the, the the problem too, though, is that I think pitchers are going to go so early on. You know, the question is, if you're all the way back in the first round, are you even going to miss out on all five of those first round pitchers? I, I my guess would be probably right. I think I think all five are probably going to go in the first fifteen picks. So you might be in a position where you have to decide whether you're willing to push up some of those second second round guys who maybe have a few more question marks in them if you're drafting there. Um, if you do get an ace at the top end, then the chances that you know one of those good second round pitchers is available later on if you're doing a double tap of the aces like I do are available is a lot less likely, as is the fact that maybe some of the higher stolen base guys like Starling Marte keeps on getting pushed up. So if I get like a Garrett Cole at at four or something like that like who's going to be left over for me later on and am I even going to be able to get two starting pitchers like I want to early on and then if I miss those two starting pitchers you know who's going to be available in round four and five am I going to miss out on my kind of second or third tier targets you know and I think those are the that's what's going to be really difficult about um, this year's KDS so what I would just recommend to people um, is just make sure that you've thought through different scenarios of who you're likely to get um, in different situations, make th- sure you think through a lot of them because chances are, especially in the early mains before main event ADP is set, you know, things are going to be, you know, people are going to be getting their guys. They're going to be pushing people up. Starting pitching is going to push up. Stolen base is going to be pushing up. So just make sure that you're factoring in a lot of different situations and making sure that you're able to address the the different categories with, um, you know, with whatever KDS uh, you choose. So I think that would be, um, you know, a lot of my uh, advice around setting your KDS. Um, but, you know, I still, to be honest with you, um, I still don't know exactly for sure what that, what my my first KDS will be and whether it will be just a straight like four to 10 and then one through three, which will never happen at that range. And then later on, or whether I even go like, you know, after one, two or three, just to make sure that I get you know, the guy that I want. So those are just some of the things that are going through my mind as I think about setting KDS. Um, but, you know, it all depends on what your your strategy for success looks like and what groupings of players you find yourself being most interested at uh, and what that means from, you know, your KDS. All right, the next question is another uh, is another little bit of a trolling question here, uh, but at Smata underscore BB, that's Smata, who puts together some fantastic resources for TGFBI, Razball and just in general, um, 
uh, minor graphs over at, at Prospects Live and is just a, a terrific follow and a super nice dude. Um, his question is, good picks in the late 200s and early 300s of the cut line format. And the reason he's asking that is because we are both in uh, Raz, uh, the Raz, Raz Slam together um, league, which is a best ball points league. So I will answer this pretty quickly because I am not at all an expert in best ball or um, the cut line format. But what I'm planning to do is get a ton of starting pitchers and a lot of high variance hitters. And the reason for that is that I want to get a crap ton of starting pitchers because, or just pitchers in general, starting pitchers and closers because, um, you know, it's best ball. So the nine best pitching performances from any given week are going to be the ones that show up on my roster, and I want to make sure that I'm able to do that. And then high-variance hitters, because I've got a solid foundation for hitting already, and so I want to get some high-variance guys who may be able to put up some really good weeks that I can include um, with my solid base. And then, you know, if they don't do well, I hopefully have a solid base otherwise um, to help me out um, uh, in, in performing well. So we'll see. This is my first shot related points, best ball format. So I'm hoping I do well, but I'm not banking on it for sure. Uh, next question is at uh, just never sleeps NL only five by five two hundred sixty dollar rosters um, Gallegos at five dollars Cueto at five dollars and Hauser at five dollars keep or cut uh, so I don't really play NL only so I'd be doing you a disservice by weighing in with a very strong opinion here uh, I also don't have any context on your on your keeper league you know what keeper inflation might be who's likely to be available in free agency, which I think are all critical things to know when you're making keeper decisions. But based on those three, I think I'd rank them Hauser, number one, in terms of my interest level, Gallegos, number two, and then Cueto in terms of value. So, um, you know, definitely keep Hauser, I think, and then maybe the other two. For what it's worth, I did do a little bit of research and uh, in the labor 12-team NL only draft or auction, um, uh, all three of them went for $7, ironic, or not ironically, but interestingly enough. So in that draft, they were all valued at the exact same at $7, similar to your situation. So a little bit higher. So maybe all three of them are keepers. Maybe all three of them are values based on that draft. But again, you know, the who's available in the player pool and, and keeper inflation will probably make them even, even better keepers um, to hold on to. So uh, that would be my input on that. I hope that is helpful. Uh, at Samski NYC asks favorite late round power bat Frazier Thames Choi level and would you rather load your bench up with starting pitcher or relief pitcher stashes great question uh, so one guy I'm getting more into as drafts go by and one guy that I got in um, in TGFBI um, you know uh, this isn't the guy I, I do have own a lot of Jesus Aguilar I just think that he's worth it going where he's going and what we've seen that he's capable of doing um, but the guy that I'm more and more interested in is Rowdy Tejas uh, of the Blue Jays. Um, he had a solid end of last season after coming back from the minors um, from a skills perspective. And he's had a solid spring so far, um, which seems to have opened up some playing time opportunities based on what the Blue Jays are doing. It looks like they may give Teoscar Hernandez uh, a shot at the regular outfield position um, instead of Derek Fisher. Um, and so that could give Tez, um, uh, or, or Tellez, I can't, I, I'm not sure which one it is. Um, he could, uh, get some time at DH if that's the case. And then Travis Shaw's had a really rough spring and obviously it's early in spring, super early, but he obviously struggled a lot last year. So if those struggles continue, he could also see plate appearances at first base for Shaw. 
um, or at DH if, if things just, just move around. Um, and the reason why I'm interested in him, I mentioned him having a really good end of last season from a skills perspective. Um, you know, when he came back from the minors, he had an 8.3% barrels per plate appearance over the entire season, which is excellent. 115 mile per hour max exit velocity, which is also excellent. And a 90.7 mile per hour exit velo, which is above league average, but that was at 94.3 miles per hour. Yes, a 94.3 mile per hour average exit velocity over his last 50 batted balls. So he was making some really strong contact. And I think one of the reasons for that might be that his his patience improved. So he's 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 normally been a guy who chases a ton of pitches outside the zone. He still did. His O-swing in the last 34 games, that was the sample size of his uh, last run in the majors, it was 36.1%. But that was a pretty significant drop um, for him um, from earlier on uh, in the season. Um, his O-swing for the season was at 39.3%. So a pretty dramatic increase there in his plate discipline. So he's swinging at better pitches. His contact improved. His in-zone contact was at actually 85.6% which is right at league average. So a guy with that type of batted ball quality, the fact that he is making more contact on pitches outside inside the zone is great because it means if his plate discipline improves even more that he could he could he could crush it even more. His hard hit rate increased up to 42% and then his ground ball remained at under 30%, um which is nice. So a lot of the things that we're looking for in terms of um, you know, uh, batted ball skills and plate discipline, he has shown um, to a pretty good degree. And so I think for that reason, uh, I think um, he could be a really nice power bat to get late. In terms of what I like to load up my bench with, with starting pitchers or relief pitch stashes. So just based on the strategy that I generally employ with, you know, the two aces and then waiting a little bit for my uh, SP3, and then, you know, even sometimes my SP4, uh, I'll generally be filling my, especially during the draft, I'll generally be filling my um, reserves or my, you know, like seven bench spots, not reserves, but bench spots. I'll be filling those with guys um, who are, you know, starting pitchers with upside, uh, relief pitcher stashes as well, um, or guys who are maybe competing for like a fifth spot in the rotation. And the reason for that is that if they do get that fifth spot in the rotation or do they do get the closer gig, then I keep them. And I and I've gotten them with a very you know with a very little investment, and if they don't get them early on in the season, I have no problem churning those spots for guys who maybe did get the opportunities or guys who are showing improvements early on in the season or who had a particularly good spring from like a velocity perspective or who hit a lot more fly balls than they usually do um, during spring training, which is also something that uh, you know has been shown to be a little bit sticky uh, at a spring training. So. You know, those are the types of guys that I'm targeting. So I do want to get some guys who who uh, back up. Um, you know, some some guys on my bench who are hitters. You know, guys like Tez, like I got Tez and um, Jesus Aguilar and Cameron Maben on my bench for TGFBI. Another thing that's important to note is, do you have a Fab run before the season starts? And in TGFBI and the NFBC, um, there's one on March 22nd. So in those drafts, I'm actually going to be able to churn my roster before the season even starts. If I have a if I have an idea of guys 
who are going up or, or if closer situations become a little bit more clear, you know, your Hunter Harveys of the world for the Orioles, who it appears may get the shot, the first shot at closing for the Orioles. So those are just examples of how I like to use that bench um, is, is mostly on pitchers. Um, and then a combination of starting pitchers and relief pitchers, just based on, you know, where I feel good with a value. Um, like Brad Boxberger is a guy that I went with in TGFBI. I got him um, really, I got him really late. He was like my last draft pick or my second to last draft pick because he's having a really good camp. His velocity is up three to four miles per hour with the Marlins after doing some work at driveline. Um, he has experience closing. Don Mattingly said some nice things about him and his experience closing. Um, and so who knows, maybe that'll turn into something, but if it doesn't, I feel really good about having a, a spot that I can churn and I'm not like really concerned about churning because I'm worried that a guy I invested a lot in, you know, might end up being good earlier on in the season. So that's generally just how I like to approach it. And it's more just like which place I feel like I might be able to get more value on the balance between starting pitchers and relief pitchers. Uh, all right, last question at Biggins22 asks, I'm trying to lock down a strategy in my head-to-head 14-team league. I'm thinking about going with two elite bats in the first two rounds, then grab a tier two starting pitcher, then alternate two hitters, then one starting pitcher. I know a draft is pretty fluid, but what are your thoughts on that? So what I think you're trying to do whenever you develop a draft strategy is you're trying to give yourself uh, uh, the best chance to win. Um, I'm not necessarily sure that being this prescriptive, at least like this, um, like on the rounds and the alternating gets you there. I think what you want to be thinking about more is are there places in the draft where I like hitting more than pitching or pitching more than hitting? And so based on where those fall in the drafts, that may be where you want to target some hitting uh, if you like that, the hitters in that spot and then pitching in places where you don't like um, the pitcher. Or if you also want to think about it this way, think about the foundation that you're setting. So maybe it's by round 10, I want to have three pitchers and three pitchers and seven hitters. And I want the three pitchers to be of such and such a quality. So maybe it's like, I want, you know, I really like the top 20 guys of starting pitchers. So I want one of my guys to be the uh, top 20 starting pitcher. And then I really like the pitchers in round five and six. And so I want another one to be a guy in round five and six. And then I really like a guy who's available in round 10 or 11. And I think I can definitely get him in round 10. And so that's what I want to do. So I think you don't want to be prescriptive in terms of saying like, okay, I'm going to alternate the rounds, but really just in thinking about where at different points in the draft do you want to be from both a category perspective and from like a balance in terms of pitching and hitting. And so just really think about that and just think about where the targets that you have for hitting and pitching are or places in the draft where you really don't like the hitters or places in the draft where you really don't like the pitchers. And think more about that than being really rigid about alternating, you know, this, this and that. It's kind of like, you know, um, with my with the pocket aces strategies that I have, yeah, you're grabbing two starting pitches early and it's pretty prescriptive in saying you should go for seven to eight hitters. But there is some flexibility in there, like in terms of the type of bats that you're getting or like if a relief pitcher drops or if it's a standalone league, then I might go after a starting pitcher where I might not or a starting pitcher or a relief pitcher earlier on in the middle of those bats because, you know, I'm less concerned about, you know, um, being as elite in in hitting and maybe I feel like pitching is a place that I might have a little bit more strength or mixing it up. So, you know, if you feel like a prescriptive approach uh, 
is something that you need from a discipline perspective, I think that's great, but I would do it more about where you think values are gonna be than about just alternating the rounds and things like that. So hope that was helpful. All right, those were some uh, great questions here for the mailbag. Um, I'm really hoping to do uh, shorter podcasts like this one throughout the season, either doing mailbags or just sharing some of the, the things that I've noticed, insights, things of that nature. Um, so let me know what you think about this podcast, um, you know, the mailbag and just uh, the general shorter nature of it. Uh, I would greatly appreciate that. That is going to wrap us up for episode 123 of the Batflip Crazy podcast. Thank you so much uh, for listening. Hope you enjoyed that shorter podcast with the mailbag format. Uh, again, as I mentioned a couple times in the podcast, I'm hoping to do more of those as the, as we get closer to the season uh, and during the season so that we can kind of stay current uh, together on the news and notes. Uh, thanks to everybody who submitted a question. Really appreciate it. They were awesome uh, this week. Best of luck with all of your fantasy baseball research. Best of luck with all your fantasy baseball drafts because we all know those are happening now. Take care and be kind to one another. <laughs>